But you might be interested in how I became offensive. One of the most important things is to, is to recognize that we do have this mounting violence in us. Shoot them in the legs so they can't move. They shoot them in the shoulders, in the arms, and in the rib cages where they breathe nice. Oh, yes. I probably am a dead man already. Furious Lives, a true history podcast. I'd like you to pretend that you and your mates are planning a bank job. How do you do it? Do you sneak in through the roof Mission Impossible style? Do you talk your way into the vault like in Ocean's Eleven? Or do you dive in with machine guns and blast the place apart like in Heat? What's your escape plan? Who's the driver? How many people do you need? Do you need to launder the money? Can you launder the money? Will you need to disappear for a while afterwards? There's a lot to think about. But take heart, the FBI thinks that first-time bank robbers get away with it three-quarters of the time. It's only with subsequent heists that you raise the risk of getting caught. By the time you've done four bank jobs, there's a 50-50 chance you're behind bars. But what if you didn't stop at four banks? What if you robbed over a hundred? What if you spent your entire adult life planning heist after heist after heist? Who would you be? And what would your life be like? Well, that was the life of William Francis Sutton, the most prolific bank robber who ever lived. Sutton was born in Brooklyn in 1901. He was the son of Irish immigrants. He was an excellent student and came from a good home. His entire extended family was in honest work. They were loving and supportive, and even though they were poor, they never failed to provide for their kids. Brooklyn back then was something of an Irish ghetto. It was dirt poor, crime-ridden, and violent as hell. Despite coming from a good home, the neighbourhood had the greater influence on Sutton, and he turned to crime from a really young age. When he was just 12, he broke into a department store at midnight and raided the register. He says in his biography that he blew it all on candy and soda. He wanted to go off to college to become a lawyer when he left school, but his folks couldn't afford it, so he got a job at an insurance company instead. Said insurance company had an internal banking department, and Sutton got to spend his late teens learning how bank security worked. He switched jobs and started stealing postage stamps from the mailroom to resell on the black market. It was going great until some of his co-workers got caught doing the same thing. Sutton says that he felt terribly disappointed when they were fired because it meant that the clever scheme that he had come up with wasn't that clever after all. He liked to think of himself as a really cunning guy and discovering that he was just average was a blow to his ego. His first arrest came when he broke into his girlfriend's dad's house. He was dating a very Catholic girl that didn't want to shag unless she was married. Sutton needed money for that to happen so he broke into the dad's safe one night and made off with 100,000 US dollars. He was 18 years old, so naturally he spent the money in the dumbest ways possible. He bought a mink coat for his girlfriend, a bunch of suits and shoes, and he bought a brand new car, even though he had no idea how to drive. The car lasted about 100 miles before he completely cooked the clutch, and the pair were arrested at some little town in northern New York just south of the Canadian border. 
They get whisked back home, and Sutton gets offered an amazing deal by the father. He gets off with probation as long as he promises never to see the girl ever again. He takes the deal, as you would, and then immediately heads back into more crime. He and two friends, most notably a guy named Eddie Wilson, start running illegal gambling houses and dance halls. It's not crazy lucrative, but they were doing okay, until one night, Sutton had to kick a guy out of one of his clubs. The man's name was Happy Gleason, and Sutton had to fight him out in the front steps to get him to leave. Sutton won, but it became common knowledge that he and Gleason had bad blood. The trouble was, Gleason was a known dickhead. He was both a thug and a police informant, and everybody hated him. One night, someone gunned him down. The police decided that Sutton and Wilson were the main suspects and put out a warrant for them. Brooklyn PD weren't known for their careful casework at the time. More often than not, they simply decided on a suspect, arrested them, and beat a confession out of them. Rather than get railroaded for a murder they didn't commit, the pair of them left town. And by left town, I mean they caught a bus over the Brooklyn Bridge all the way to Manhattan, where the Brooklyn PD had no jurisdiction and the Manhattan cops simply didn't care. Moving six miles away was enough to escape a murder charge in 1920. Sutton tried to stay clean for a while. He had a bunch of normal jobs, but each time he was tempted back to the old line of work. He was a welder at a shipyard for a while, and it got him thinking about how to cut open a safe. He hung out with actors and chorus girls and became really interested in makeup and costumes. He loved the way that you could make yourself look like anyone. His last honest job was repairing burglar alarms, and he only took it so he could become better at breaking burglar alarms. He didn't last very long, though. One night, a gang busted in and blew up the company safe. The company hired private detectives, who decided Sutton was the prime suspect. He couldn't stick around to face questions because of the murder charge hanging over him from Brooklyn, so he changed his name and moved uptown. Sutton described this point in his life as the moment he became a professional thief, the kind of man that wakes up in the morning with every creative impulse pointed towards finding a perfect heist. His next job was a simple one. Sutton spent a few days watching a jewellery store and came up with a plan. He learned the manager came in an hour before the shop opened to organise it for the day. Sutton came by with a valuable watch that he'd stolen, tapped on the window, and insisted that it needed to be repaired immediately. The owner, against his better judgment, opened the door and was greeted by a pistol. Willie was able to calmly clear out the safe, secure in the knowledge that nobody would be coming by for at least another hour. But he only made off with about half as much as he hoped. His partner on the job had chickened out at the last minute. This was an omen of things to come for Sutton, because throughout his career, his one great weakness would be the men he picked to partner with. He used the same technique at a shoe store for 800 and an insurance company for another 1000 Big money in the 1920s. But these robberies weren't much more than simple stick-up jobs, and as a smart guy, he craved something a little more challenging. It came to him courtesy of Eddie Wilson. Wilson had started working with an elite gang of safecrackers known as the Tate Gang, run by Doc Tate, a master thief. Tate was a well-dressed, elegant man in his 40s. 
He suffered rheumatism that often interfered with the steady hands he needed to break open locks. Anything with a hole in it can be picked, he would often say. Tate hated violence and took more of a a cat burglar after hours approach to his thieving. Sutton and he hit it off immediately, and before long, they were cracking safes up and down the northeast. Their MO was simple. Pick a town, pick six or seven businesses, case them thoroughly, and hit them all in one or two nights, and never work the home base of New York City. The smaller towns were easy pickings because they simply didn't expect to be hit by such a sophisticated gang. On one heist in Boston, they were interrupted by a janitor working late and had to scurry out a side window. On their way out of the alley, Sutton passed a police station with an open window. He peered inside and saw an officer manning the late-night desk. Sutton left his jimmy and lockpicks behind as a joke. The next day, he bought the paper. A journalist had found the tools before the cops had and wrote a scathing article attacking the Boston PD. Sutton kept the clipping on him for years. They were making an easy 2000 a month each, but the good times weren't to last. The crew was spending as much as they were making. Doc Tate was boasting to everyone who would listen about what a master thief he was, and he was blowing up a massive gambling debt. Sutton became a regular in the Broadway theatre crowd and threw lavish parties at his upscale midtown apartment. Manufacturers were catching up as well. To protect the tumblers, which are those internal parts of a safe that align the lock, they began to install heavy shielding plates. When that failed, they began using hardening agents to make the plates increasingly tough for drills to crack. Sutton knew that eventually, these old methods of delicate safe cracking were going to fail, and so he began improving his metallurgy skills, preparing for the moment when welding would be the only choice. The end of their partnership came with a robbery on a department store in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Tate estimated that it was an easy million dollars, their biggest score yet, but Sutton had reservations. The alarms were top-notch and the store's safe was essentially impervious to drilling. Sutton told Tate that welding torches would be the only way forward, but Doc Tate was a vain man as well. He couldn't tolerate the notion that his safe-cracking skills weren't up to the task, and as leader he forbade the use of welding. The job was a disaster. They spent nine hours trying to crack the safe and eventually gave up at dawn. On return to New York, the gang agreed to go its separate ways. Doc Tate would be caught a few months later and wound up dying in federal prison. Sutton had to move on quickly after the breakup of the gang. His lifestyle was very expensive and he was running out of money. He performed a daytime heist on a jewellery store that was right outside a courthouse. His reasoning was that no one would expect daylight robbery to occur with so many cops around. He walked right in while the store was open, locked the front door, cut the display apart, and took a bag full of diamonds, all without anyone noticing, including the store clerk. A week later, Sutton was at a baseball game when he got a tap on his shoulder. It was the private detectives from the burglar alarm company. He was arrested and dragged back over the river to Brooklyn. Sam Todd, the head detective on the case, picked Sutton up and chucked him down a flight of steel stairs. Sutton would later say that it was a miracle he didn't fracture his skull. He was then tied to a chair and beaten with a rubber hose until dawn. But he didn't break under the torture. 
Though Sutton was guilty of an awful lot of things, he was no killer. He was held for a full nine months in a Brooklyn jail until his trial. Happy Gleason's friends from the evening stood as eyewitnesses that Sutton was the killer, while Sutton's friends provided an alibi that he couldn't have been. The case went back and forth, but Sutton's lawyers were forced to give him a grim ultimatum. Plead down to a lesser charge or risk execution. To quote Sutton, When you are guilty, you are depending entirely on your legal rights, the the maze of protections, legal manoeuvres and loopholes that can help you beat the rap. You have no qualms whatsoever about using them. The law says you have the right. But when you are innocent, you are always in a rage of indignation. You feel helpless and put upon. You are totally on the defensive. Constantly, you have to fight back the desire to leap out and scream your innocence. You can't believe this massive, grinding machinery is doing this to you. At the conclusion of the case, the jury deliberated for about seven hours before pronouncing him innocent. On exit from the courtroom, his head lawyer turned to Sutton and said, Every day that you wake up in the morning from now on, mark it off on your calendar as a day of profit. But Sutton was Sutton, and the first thing he thought about doing upon release was robbing a bank. Sutton and Wilson decided to hit the Ozone Park, a midtown Manhattan bank. After much planning, they broke into the bank basement with the intention of drilling up and into the safe from below, and then using welding torches to cut a hole in the side. But the plan was too complex. First, they had to build a wooden platform that could boost them up into the ceiling of the cellar. Then they had to drill through the concrete floor, which was a full five inches thick and much better made than Sutton had anticipated. It took them until 7.30 the next morning to get to the safe, by which time a pair of cops were taking a break in the lobby. They abandoned the jobs, leaving their welding torches behind. Wilson drove the getaway car, but he wasn't very careful and lost control on the wet. He crashed the car into a truck. He exchanged details with the owner and moved on, but it wasn't long before the crash came back to haunt them. Later that day, they were having lunch with Sutton's mum, whom he hadn't seen in five years, when they were interrupted by a cop who was interested in the banged-up car out front. He said there'd been a hit-and-run last night, and that he doubted it was either of them, but he still wanted them to come down to the station to fill out some forms anyway. Not wanting to upset Sutton's mum, they went back down to the station house and gave over all their details. Unbeknownst to the pair, the cops had already traced the welding equipment they left in the bank basement to the acetylene gas vendor who identified Wilson, who was now firmly connected to Sutton because of the car crash. The pair were charged with burglary and grand larceny. Wilson was tried first and opted to defend himself. He was quickly convicted and given 10 years. Sutton opted for the more traditional approach of retaining a defence team. The prosecution presented a fake witness stating he'd seen Sutton fleeing the robbery, but his lawyer tore the witness apart on the stand, leaving the state with a flimsy case that relied on him being seen with Eddie Wilson later that day. The jury came back hung, and the state offered Sutton a misdemeanor charge to avoid a retrial, which he turned down. The retrial saw Sutton face a different judge and he got sentenced to 10 years in Sing Sing. Named after the nearby town of Osening, Sing Sing State Penitentiary is pretty famous as a prison for hardened cons. It turns up constantly in 20th century gangster fiction. But in reality, 
Sing Sing was downright progressive compared to the other prisons of its day. It was right near New York, which made it very easy for visitors. Packages from the outside came freely, and though the official prison food was terrible, the inmates had the run of the kitchen, allowing them to cook anything they wanted. There were education and rehabilitation programs. Some of the inmates were rich New York socialites that still had political pull, which ensured any problems were quickly fixed. The deputy warden was wildly corrupt, and he allowed gambling, trade, and even a bit of drinking. Sutton quickly made the right friends and settled in. He got a job in the garden and was beginning to appreciate the tranquil life he'd been given when he was transferred out of Sing Sing due to overcrowding. He and Eddie Wilson were sent to Dana Mora, which was basically a death camp. Right up on the Canadian border and surrounded by thick forest, Dana Mora frequently got to 30 degrees below zero in the winter. It was run by a giant sadistic warden named Granger. Inmates weren't even allowed to talk to one another. Guards would often murder prisoners on a whim by sending them to the isolation block and staging a suicide. There was an attached mental health ward where inmates were experimented on, beaten up, and forced to fight one another. The coal for the boiler was often stolen by the guards, there was a bed bug infestation, and there was no running water in the cells. The inmates showered for two minutes a week, one minute with hot water and one with cold. Keep in mind, it was minus 30 outside. There were jobs for the inmates, but Sutton was denied one by the warden when he refused to rat out a man who knifed another inmate. So he just spent all day reading. Classic literature, chemistry, psychology, anything he could find to stop himself from going nuts. Prisoners would escape occasionally, but there was nowhere to go. The nearest town was inhabited exclusively by the guards, and the forests were nigh on impossible to navigate. Sutton spent three years there before he was sent up for parole, which, much to his shock and elation, he was granted first time. Before his release day could come through, though, the prison saw a massive riot. Lifelong inmates couldn't take the mistreatment anymore and organised to attack the guards during lunch. Quote, It was the most awesome, frightening thing I have ever experienced. From one second to the next, they turned into a wild-eyed, hate-crazed mob. They were out to wreck, render asunder, to tear apart. The prisoners smashed their way into the workshops and grabbed pipes, hammers, rods, anything they could use as a blunt weapon. They poured oil and grease onto the ground and lit the buildings afire, before rushing out into the main yard and charging at the walls. They were met by a hail of machine gun fire from the outer towers. There was smoke everywhere, and the prisoners scrambled for cover. Sutton pinned himself to a wall and watched a friend get gunned down a few metres from his position. The army was called in to help quell the riot, and after five hours of grenades, gunfire and fire hoses, the massacre finally ended. Officially, only three men died, but Sutton was sure he saw more than that gun down and the extreme brutality of the beatings the guards dished out to the survivors almost certainly resulted in more casualties. Sutton took a beating or two as well, but his parole saved him. On release, the warden told him, If you ever come back here, Sutton, you won't leave alive. He was 28 on release and determined to go straight. His next conviction carried a mandatory 25-year sentence in New York. He was sent to live in Brooklyn with his mother and got a decent job doing landscape gardening. He started dating a girl from the neighbourhood whom he'd been exchanging letters with. They got married, she fell pregnant, 
and everything was going great, right up until the stock market crash of 1929. Sutton, like millions of other Americans, lost his job. It may seem inevitable that he would return to a life of crime, but to be fair, how else could a lower-class ex-con with little formal education afford to raise a family in the middle of the Great Depression? He hunted down a new partner, and he picked Jack Bassett, a fellow inmate of his at Dinamora. Sutton picked him because he considered him a very loyal, trustworthy guy, but it was a terrible choice because Bassett was really dumb, and it was going to cause all sorts of problems. The plan was the same as the jewellery store robbery with the broken watch. Sutton would put on some sort of an act, fool someone into letting him inside, then pull out a gun and rob the place. The first target was another jeweller's, Rosenthal Brothers. On the morning of the robbery, the porter, Mr Lewis, arrived at 7.30am to open the place up. Sutton watched him through the window, waited for the alarms to be shut off, then rang the front bell. Mr Lewis opened the door to find Sutton dressed as a mailman. He said he had a telegram for Mr Rosenthal, and would Lewis like to sign for it? Lewis very briefly dropped his guard, just long enough to take his hands off the door so he could hold the envelope to sign it. Sutton rammed the door open, held out his gun, and told Lewis to get inside. Bassett, who was watching from over the street, ran over and shut the door. Lewis tried politely to reason them out of it, but Sutton ordered him to stand at the window as though nothing was wrong, and one by one the rest of the bank employees arrived. Bassett tied them up as they came in. The head salesman had the combination, so he was marched to the back and ordered to open the safe. After 15 minutes of fiddling around with the lock, including an attempt by Lewis to alert his boss via a phone call, they walked out of the safe room with $150,000 in jewels. They flung on overcoats as disguises, then left the building, the burglar alarm ringing in their ears as they jogged up the street to their getaway car. The new system worked. Sutton was now confident he would be let in anywhere. They hit the Richmond Hill Bank for 19 grand, the Converse Bank outside Boston, banks and jewellers throughout the five boroughs of New York. They expanded into Massachusetts and Pennsylvania on a regular basis. They used a police uniform so many times that the NYPD began checking their own ranks for a gang of rogue cops. Banks started devising warning systems for the other employees, small clues like an upturned calendar in the window, so that if the first person to come in was taken hostage, the others would know to call the police if the calendar hadn't been put up. It didn't work. Sutton's research and preparation was so thorough he picked up on the tactic right away. He worked hard on his disguises. He plucked eyebrows, dyed his hair, shaved his head, put on and took off weight. The papers gave him a nickname, Willie the Actor. He was downright gentlemanly during his robberies as well, using the eloquence and sophistication he picked up during his time on Broadway. One of his victims stated, Being robbed by him was like going to the movies, only the usher had a gun. Irrespective, all of his robberies were armed ones, even though a shot was never fired. The idea of actually pulling the trigger bothered Sutton very deeply. He felt that if you pulled the trigger the first time, maybe it would be easier the second. He liked to use a pistol most of the time, but if he could hide it on approach to the bank, he would use a Tommy gun. It was just that much more intimidating. The only time they ran into any trouble was when a teenager slipped out of Bassett's control and ran for the door. The pair abandoned the job immediately and ran for the car, but it wouldn't start. The kid came running down the street with a cop in tow as Bassett desperately turned the car over. 
Sutton, though, had a brainwave. He got out of the car, casually leaned against the window, and calmly watched as the cop approached. The cop became puzzled, and despite the kid jumping up and down and shouting at Sutton, he slowed his approach to a crawl. The second the car started, Sutton dove in through the window, and they skidded off, leaving the officer no time to unholster his gun. It was the only time they ever had to speed away from a bank. Sutton used the money to buy a big house in a rich suburb and told his wife that all the money was coming from his realty business. Sutton says that she probably figured it out, but she played the role of a housewife anyway, picking him up from the station every day. Bassett went a different way. He bought expensive suits and started keeping girlfriends in a number of different apartments throughout the city, blowing heaps of money in exuberant displays that bothered Sutton. He was not keeping a low profile at all. Sutton had to begin loaning Bassett money just to keep the partnership running, and before long, Bassett's wife Kitty realised something was up. One afternoon, she met Sutton for lunch. She knew Bassett was cheating on her with at least one other woman. Sutton fed her some convoluted story about the other woman being a criminal associate, but he knew that wouldn't hold. He tracked Bassett down and insisted that he clean up his home life. Jack, if we ever take a fall, we have to get 30 years each as second offenders. Do you realise the situation you're causing here? If Kitty should go haywire, we're cooked. But Jack Bassett was pretty stupid. Jack told Sutton that he dumped his girlfriends, but instead, he just hid his favourite one in a different apartment. Kitty Bassett found out the full details shortly after, and in a fit of rage, turned the pair of them into the police. Sutton evaded detectives for a full week, going so far as to knock a pair of them down during a foot chase down a flight of stairs. They got him by getting Kitty, whom he still trusted, to set up a meeting with him. The cops ambushed him over coffee and cake. To make matters worse, Bassett completely spilled his guts. This man that Sutton relied on for the sole reason that he felt he was loyal to his friends betrayed him completely. They'd robbed over 60 banks. Sutton was taken into custody, and over a hundred people were brought in to view him. His disguises had been so good that only one man was able to correctly pick him out of the lineup. Mr. Lewis, the steely-nerved porter from Rosenthal's, picked him out in a heartbeat. The police then took him downstairs and beat the crap out of him with phone books. They were mostly interested in Sutton's underworld contacts, primarily mob boss Dutch Schultz, who Sutton sold stolen goods to. Sutton hated Schultz, but wouldn't rat on him. It was both against his code of conduct and very risky. Schultz would have easily had him murdered in prison. In response to his fortitude, the detectives took him down into a sub-basement, stripped him naked, tied him down to a metal table, and thoroughly beat him with rubber hoses. Quote, I was one solid contusion front and back, a slab of quivering pain. Then they flipped him over and did the other side. It was four days before he was allowed to see anyone, including a doctor. The cops arrested his pregnant wife, who turned over all the money she could find to them. Dutch Schultz sent a corrupt ex-judge, Arthur Vitali, to represent Sutton. He was an eminent trial lawyer, but his corrupt behaviour from his time as a judge made him hated by the legal establishment, and Sutton couldn't get a very fair hearing with him as his lawyer. The judge overruled everything Vitali had to say. Sutton was convicted, and as this was his second felony, he was given the mandatory minimum of 30 years. 
He was back in prison after just 15 months. It was 1930, and he was just 29 years old. Quote, There's a thrill that comes from breaking out of jail after years of the most meticulous planning, with everybody watching against all the odds that is like nothing else in the world. Sing Sing had been totally rebuilt since Sutton's last stay. The old cell block had been levelled. It was said now to be escape-proof. Higher, thicker walls, more barbed wire, and stronger steel bars that couldn't be cut through. First, Sutton visited the warden and told him that he had to stay at Sing Sing to appeal his sentence. Sutton had broken probation with his conviction and now had to serve the rest of his first conviction, which meant being returned to Dana Mora. That would have been a death sentence. He needed to escape. His first attempt was an underground tunnel. During his outdoor time in the yard, Sutton found an opening to a cellar, which led to a piece of pipe that was under construction. A new power plant for the prison was being built outside the walls, and this pipe must have been where the cabling was going to go. Once he figured out that he fit down the hole, he decided it would be a great escape option. He just needed to find out when the breakthrough was going to happen. But he was beaten to the punch. Four prisoners escaped through the pipe into the new power station, His second plan involved a pair of short ladders in the mess hall that were often left unattended, and the news that the southern tower was unmanned at night. The guards figured it didn't matter because the cells were escape-proof. Sutton got himself a few small hacksaw blades and was able to very quietly work away at the bars over several nights. The guards didn't notice the cuts all the way down the bottom of the cell, and they had no need to check because they all knew that the bars were impossible to cut. Getting out of his cell was easy, but getting out of the prison and not getting caught immediately as he tried to flee, that was the hard part. There were seven doors he had to get through before he could access the yard, and then he would have to strap the ladders together, climb the wall, scale down the other side without killing himself, and meet a contact on the other side who could drive a getaway car. He made wax impressions of the first three doors, which were little more than house locks, but this took him months because the doors were usually guarded during the day. The next three were iron gates, but he could pick those relatively easily. The last one required one of the prison trustees, a prisoner with special privileges, to sneak into the guard room and make a wax impression of the key. He had to take another man, Egan, with him. He didn't really want to because it complicated the plan, but Egan was the one getting him the hacksaws and lockpicks, so Sutton obliged. One night, around 11pm, the two removed the cut bars, carefully replaced them, and tiptoed down the cell block. They grabbed the ladders from the mess, lashed them together, and made their way to the locked doors. Sutton's preparation paid off handsomely. Each key worked, and they were quickly out into the prison yard. There were searchlights everywhere, so they ran the ladder along the outer walls, and quietly as they could, made their way to the southern tower. They hoisted up the rickety ladder, climbed it, and found an empty tower, with a convenient rope left hanging all the way to the ground. The guards used it to haul up snacks when they were too lazy to climb down. (laughs) The pair abseiled down the outer wall and ran to the nearest road, where Sutton's wife was waiting in a brand new Buick. They clambered in, she floored it, and drove them all the way back to New York City via country backroads with the headlights off the whole way. She had spent months practicing the route at night until she knew it like the back of her hand. It was the perfect escape. 
he was in custody for just 25 months. Sutton ended his marriage shortly after escaping. He knew his wife would eventually get arrested, and he couldn't risk his daughter becoming an orphan to a pair of convicts, so he left her. It didn't stop him from shacking up with a new girlfriend just three or four months later, though. He also contacted Bo Weinberg, a confidant of mob boss Dutch Schultz. He gave Sutton $1,500 and an unlimited line of credit. Then, they visited Egan's brother down at the docks, who promptly abused Egan and told Sutton not to work with him under any circumstances. Egan was a hopeless drunk and utterly unreliable. He met with Eddie Wilson, who was now out on parole, and the three of them attempted a bank job in the Bronx. It failed because Egan got blind drunk instead of showing up. Sutton then skipped New York for Philadelphia, but before he left, he couldn't resist one last dig at the NYPD. He robbed the Corn Exchange Bank on 110th and Broadway, which is three blocks west of Central Park, right in the heart of Manhattan itself. He walked across the road in the middle of the day, dressed as a cop. He gave a friendly wave to the traffic police on the corner, stepped into the bank, rounded up the employees, flirted with a few of the tellers while Eddie emptied the safe, and then skipped back outside to catch the subway home. Sutton remembered it as one of the most fun crimes he ever committed. Sutton and Wilson got another partner named Perlango and began knocking over banks in Philly. They hit about 20 before security measures got too good for them to deal with, including one occasion where a woman outside the bank saw Sutton disarm the guard through a window, forcing them to abort. They started hitting the surrounding towns like Scranton instead, but the bank job they had to abort annoyed Sutton. He had to go back and have another go at it. The system the bank was employing was to have the guard lock the door after each employee arrived, including himself. This way, Sutton couldn't use his normal plan. Instead, they cut a hole in the ceiling, rappelled down a rope, disabled the alarm, and waited for the guard to come in. The moment the guard locked the door, he turned around to see Sutton with his feet up on the manager's desk, holding a pistol. The bank manager was late that day, and by the time Sutton and Wilson had finished clearing out the safe, a crowd of customers had assembled. Just a minute, the bank will open shortly, Sutton told them, before walking right out the front door. Once again, though, his choice of partner would prove to be his undoing. The new guy, Perlango, had grown up poor and didn't handle money well. He was still living in the eastern slums of New York where he had grown up, except now he had nice suits and a shiny Cadillac. The police noticed, tailed him, and caught Wilson picking him up. Wilson spotted the tail and tried to shake them off, but he ran into traffic and was gunned down by the cops. He lived, but was permanently disabled. Perlango confessed to everything, including where Sutton was living. On February the 6th, 1935, the Philadelphia and New York Police Departments who sent a captain and six detectives for the occasion, stormed Sutton's apartment in a joint operation. In a swift trial in which Sutton was given no counsel, he was given 25 to 50 years in Eastern State Pen. Opened in 1829, Eastern State Pen was legendarily dank, cold and miserable. The fatality rate was high and prisoners were kept in a permanent state of solitary confinement. By Sutton's time, though, Eastern State Pen had improved dramatically. They had a shop program, a place where prisoners could run their own craft market, and it was right in the middle of Philadelphia. The warden knew of Sutton's skill in escaping and was taking no chances. 
He spent his first year there on an isolation ward, and it was another six months before he was allowed into the yard with other prisoners. Even then, he was still banned from the tool shop. He became a secretary to the prison psychiatrist. He got it by practicing typing 16 hours a day in his cell block during isolation, during which time he wasn't even given a real typewriter, just a piece of paper with a picture of typewriter keys on it. It was a quiet, unassuming job, which gave him a lot of scope to talk to the right people and keep his eye out for an opportunity to escape. In the meantime, he went back to studying and took refresher courses in just about everything he could think of. His first escape attempt came when one of his friends, Adam the plumber, found the main sewer. He was sure that there would be an exit grate to the main city sewer system in a large basin somewhere under the main tower, but he didn't know if it could be used to escape. Adam figured that there would be some sort of basin gate that you would need to get into the main city sewer system from, but Sutton would need a way to prop it open. A few weeks later, during a guard switch, Adam dug out the earth surrounding the manhole. They raised the cover, and Sutton, butt naked, lowered himself into the sewer. He had a torch and some metal rods strapped to his back. He had to lie on his belly and wriggle along to move. The pipe was filled with giant cockroaches, and there was a thick green slime on the walls from years of human waste flowing through. Every now and then, a toilet would flush. The pipe got deeper as he went, along with the water level. It was up to his chest by the time he got to the basin. There was solid waste everywhere, and not just feces. Bandages, wet wipes, and general medical waste. He pulled out the rods, assembled them into one long pole, and poked around looking for the basin door. But there was nothing. The basin was huge. He tried to swim around looking for the door, but he wasn't in water. It was this molasses-like well of human waste. He almost drowned trying to get himself back upright. Then his torch battery died. He had to get back to Adam fast, with no sense of direction. The guards would eventually move Adam along, and Sutton needed him to pry the manhole cover back open. In total darkness, total panic, naked and covered in shit, Sutton fumbled around in the dark until he stumbled on roughly the spot Adam was waiting and pounded on the roof of the pipe like a madman. Adam removed the cover and hauled Willie out of the grime, but they abandoned the sewer plan. The next attempt involved the weather. He was able to climb up onto the window of his cell at night and look down at the yard. There was a changing of the guard at midnight and Philadelphia was sometimes beset by this really heavy fog in the summer. It was so heavy that you couldn't see the walls. If he could just get out of his cell on the right night, he was a free man. He was still being watched very closely and there was always a bed check five minutes after midnight. The guards made certain to shine a torch on Sutton to make sure he was still there. He decided he needed three things. A rope to climb down, a hook to climb the wall, and a really good dummy of himself. He built a secret compartment in the floor of his cell, stowed a rope and a hook in there. He made a plaster cast of his face using some old construction putty. He painted it using leftovers given to him by the guys in the craft market. He saved his hair every time he got a haircut to give it the perfect wig. He was so happy with the cast, he made one of his hands too, just to make it that extra bit convincing. After a year of preparation, the night finally came. A heavy fog rolled in. He got out of bed, laid down the dummy, unbolted the window frame and... 
there was a scuffle down in the yard. Some other prisoners had the same plan, but mistimed the guard change and went a few minutes early. Searchlights opened up, alarms went off, gates were locked down, and Sutton had to go back to bed. The next morning, they found the secret compartment, and he was thrown into solitary for six more months. Now, these escape attempts did not occur overnight. By the time he was released back into general population, he had been in Eastern State Pen for six years. The next attempt was his most elaborate yet. Sutton and six other prisoners hauled a thick granite slab out of one of their cells, replaced it with a dummy to disguise the entrance, and during yard time, they would raise it up, lower themselves down, and dig out a tunnel. It would be a full 95 feet long and extend all the way under the yard. Now, building a tunnel at the best of times is difficult. There are cave-ins, floods, you might need to blast rock out of the way, and even if you can excavate the space, you still need to get rid of the dirt. Well, they didn't have good equipment. They had spoons and bevels and a shovel with almost no handle. To begin, they get rid of the dirt a handful at a time by stuffing it into their pockets, walking into the yard, and just sort of sifting it into the dirt with their feet. Later on, they route the tunnel over the main sewer and just dump everything in there. Only one man at a time could dig. It was slow, dangerous work crawling on their stomachs. There wasn't much wood for support, so they were at constant risk of a cave-in. They had a jury-rigged extension cord system providing them light. One afternoon, they hit a big pocket of water, which flooded the whole tunnel. The men now had to dig underwater. After several months, they found themselves under the outer wall. But it was 15 feet thick, and as they continued under it, the foot of air they had became an inch. They dug completely underwater with their lips sucking at the ceiling. They cleared the wall, dug up, and came across the first signs of grass. They decided that when they escaped, they would all go at once. It was very lucky that they could escape right into the heart of a major city. One Monday morning, 12 men in total crawled through the mud, lined up head to toe, and escaped Eastern State Penitentiary. Only trouble was, they popped right under the feet of two passing cops, who happened to be on their regular morning patrol. Sutton and the two police were stunned. The cops couldn't believe the fountain of convicts pouring out of the ground in front of them like something out of a cartoon. When they finally came to their senses, they fired after Willie, who promptly bolted off down the street. He and 11 others were quickly rounded up and returned to the prison. The warden was furious and threatened to shoot Sutton on the spot. They were taken before a court without proper representation or planning. Sutton protested at the unconstitutionality of the proceeding, but all 12 men were quickly convicted of jailbreaking. Sutton got 10 to 20 years extra tacked onto his sentence because he was deemed to be the ringleader. He and five other escapees were transferred out of Eastern State and sent to Holmesburg, an allegedly impregnable prison that hadn't had a single escapee since it was built in 1894. Sutton broke out in 16 months. Holmesburg was the same design as Eastern State, but it had bigger walls and was miles out of the city. It was run by a medical doctor rather than a warden, but he ran it brutally. There had been an attempt to break out the previous year, but five out of six of the escapees were gunned down in the gatehouse yard. The walls were heavily defended by machine guns. Sutton and his friends were placed in the isolation block. They were never allowed out, not even for meals. There was a small handball caught behind a heavy wall, 
sectioned off from the rest of the prison by a heavy steel door. A single guard delivered their meals twice a day. There were no shops or industry at Holmesburg. Sutton wasn't even allowed to leave his cell block for medical reasons. One day, he was taken to the prison hospital with a terrible fever. The warden sent him back to his cell against doctor's wishes. The warden's orders were, if he's going to die, he's going to die in his cell. Sutton remained in terrible health for about two months. He was nearly 50. A severe flu with this sort of medical aid could have easily killed him. The nurse, an imprisoned bank robber himself, could see that Sutton would not survive Holmesburg. So he told Sutton about the two ladders in the cellar of the isolation block that could be strapped together. They were long enough to climb the outer wall. Sutton was recycling his failed Eastern Pen escape plan. He would wait until heavy weather, in this case a blizzard rather than a fog, and climb the walls in the confusion. There was no change of watch that he knew of, so he needed an added detail to confuse the patrols long enough to get him over the wall. They still needed to get through that heavy steel door, as well as past the guards at the end of the cell block. But when you're in prison for years at a time, you've got very little else to think about. There were eight guards and a captain in the hub of the prison at night, and they carried no guns as a security measure. A prisoner couldn't steal a gun if you didn't have one. And that heavy steel door at the end of the cell block, well, it was so heavy that you couldn't actually see into the cell block at all from the other side, leaving a large blind spot on the hinge side of the door. All that security was beginning to work against itself. But Sutton would still need a weapon. There was simply no way for the six of them to overpower nine guards. The answer came from the seventh man in the isolation block, who came and went every day. Langy the Rat. Langy was in a gang. He got arrested, and he ratted on everyone else to get a reduced sentence. He was hated by all the other inmates, and was housed in the ISO block not as punishment, but as protection. He was given a job as a painter, and was allowed to freely roam the prison. He was extremely lonely and isolated, something Sutton exploited to a T. Despite copping hell from it from the other guys in the block, Sutton befriended Langy. He did such a good job of convincing Langy they were friends that Langy got Sutton a pistol and some hacksaw blades. The other guys were stunned and refused to do anything. They were sure it was a setup, that at any moment a wall of guards were going to come rushing into Sutton's cell and use the pistol as a pretense to beat him to death. But after a week, it became pretty clear that Sutton had the only firearm in the prison. On the 10th of February, a snowstorm arrived, and the men broke out of their cells and gathered behind the door. The guard came around for the hourly check, and the six of them knocked him down, rushed the inner hub of the pistol, and took everyone hostage. They cuffed the guards and brought them down through B-block, where they picked up two short ladders, several lengths of rope, and a handy hook to affix to the top of the wall. They locked five of the guards in a utility closet, but not before stealing their uniforms, and entered the gatehouse yard with a captain and two deputies. Several inches of snow had already settled on the ground. Sutton ordered the deputies to make their way to the wall and lower the ladder against it. The guards on the wall noticed and challenged the group. Sutton called out that they were an emergency repair crew, but the guys on the wall didn't believe him, and they started shooting. Everyone hit the deck, and Sutton jabbed the pistol into the captain's stomach. This time the captain called out that they were conducting repairs. 
Recognising his voice, the guards stopped shooting and the prisoners were able to prop their ladder against the wall, climb it and scale down the other side. The captain was too scared to say anything because in the darkness, he couldn't tell if the man with the pistol was still with him inside the walls. They'd escaped. Sutton and his men happened upon a milk truck setting out for its morning run. They hijacked it back to Philly and paid for a few bottles of milk with a spare $5 bill. They abandoned the truck in an alley and made their way to the safe house where they got new clothes and some money. The cops caught up with them shortly after. Shots were fired and the six men scattered. Sutton jumped the fences of a few private houses before shaking the cops off. He was in the middle of Philadelphia, in winter, with a thin jacket, no money and no connections. He hid out until the following afternoon. The newspapers were filled with the news of the escape. Four of them had already been caught, and Sutton didn't plan on joining them. He hitchhiked to Princeton on the way back to New York City. There, he went to see an old associate named Tommy Kling. Kling gave Sutton 500 bucks and a job offer, but Sutton wanted to lay low for a bit. He instead took a job up country as a nurse at an old folks home. It was perfect for him, because no one would dream of looking for him there. It became much more to him than just a hiding spot. Sutton would stay for a full two and a half years. He came to regard it as one of the most fulfilling experiences of his life. It was a home for the destitute elderly. They were poets and artists that never quite made it, finance people that had lost everything, but they were mostly just parents abandoned by their children. Nevertheless, Sutton was Sutton. He, Tommy Kling, and a third man, Venuta, began pulling bank jobs around New York State. He would never stay in the city and lay low at the old folks' home between jobs. Sutton had to quit his job when the newspapers put his picture on the front cover and one of the other nurses joked about him being Willie Sutton. He went to live with his girlfriend at her townhouse. He treasured every minute because he knew he was on borrowed time. It was a bank job that Sutton didn't even pull that wound up exposing him. A gang pulled an aggressive frontal assault on a bank using Halloween masks and the papers blamed the Sutton gang putting his picture front and centre. When she confronted him, he left her 700 bucks, abandoned his car, and bussed his way back to Manhattan. Three days later, his girlfriend was arrested and taken to a nearby women's remand centre as both a witness and a suspect. He continued working, but as always, his partner started causing trouble. Tommy Kling had started speculating in property around town with the help of a shady lawyer that was stealing his cash. Willie and Kling even had to go over to the man's house and put a gun to his head. He was also living with a sex worker that knew way too much about their operation, including where Sutton was living. At the same time, Sutton was working on a new, very complicated robbery on a large midtown bank. He was under a lot of stress. Kling didn't have a car, his money was all tied up in these bad investments. Willie was headed over to Kling's one day to pick him up when Willie's car failed to start. Dead battery. So he headed to the mechanics for a new one, but the mechanic wasn't in, so he caught the subway to see Kling, who insisted that Willie go back and get the car because the lawyer was promising he'd finally have the money that he owed him. So Willie rushed back to the subway, just made the train, just got back to the car in time, made his way back to the mechanic, bought the battery, and ran into two cops. He'd been so stressed he hadn't noticed that some guy recognised him on the train and tailed him. To make matters worse, Kling's girlfriend would then lead detectives to both Kling and Sutton's apartment, creating an open and shut case for the prosecution. Once again, he was babysitting the wrong partner. His arrest was a circus. The NYPD paraded him around in front of the press, 
declaring an end to the longest manhunt in New York history. He was placed under very heavy guard and wasn't allowed anything in his cell that could be used to escape. They even took his belt buckle, shoes and toothbrush. Outside the jail, Sutton was a celebrity. People cheered when his picture was shown in theatres and crowds would gather for his arraignment, chanting his name and egging him on to escape. Sutton had never once hurt anyone and the public, who could remember the Great Depression, hated the banks. He was a folk hero. But the man himself didn't get it. Quote, Not in my wildest dreams had I ever looked upon bank robbery as a revolutionary act and busting out of jail had no social significance whatsoever. Hell, I was a professional thief. I wasn't trying to make the world better for anyone but me. While awaiting trial, his daughter came to visit him. She told him that she was so happy to finally learn what he looked like and that he was grandfather to an 18-month-old boy. His ex-wife had married a burly engineer. His own mother was still alive at the same house in Brooklyn, spending her time fighting off the journalists that wanted a photo. At trial, he was found guilty and sentenced to 45 years in Attica, 15 for the Corn Exchange Bank and 30 for a firearm possession in violation of his parole. The judge lamented that he couldn't give Sutton a death sentence. In total, his cumulative sentence now was a minimum of 132 years. He was 52 years old and couldn't run, jump, dig or climb like he used to. Attica was a different sort of prison. It wasn't brutal like Danamora or industrious like Penn State or deregulated like Sing Sing. It used a weird kind of bureaucratic excessiveness to wear down the prisoners. The guards handed down minor punishments for just about anything. Life there was fairly uneventful. Sutton was placed in isolation on and off. He helped calm a potential prison riot in 1965 and experienced some drama when the prison tried to desegregate during the civil rights movement. He wasn't allowed to have a job. He wasn't allowed to talk to many of the other inmates. He wasn't even allowed to go to the prison commissary because it was considered too close to the front gate. He doesn't mention this in his autobiography, but other prisoners at the time described him as a sullen, depressed old man who would regale them with stories of the good old days. In 1966, he had a chance to escape. Some of the other inmates had a complicated plan involving distracting the guards and some prison trucks, and they wanted Sutton to come along as sort of a talisman of good luck. But he turned them down. After all his years on the run, he'd finally come to realise that life as a fugitive was just another form of prison. Besides, he'd found another way out. He was going to fulfil a boyhood dream by becoming a lawyer. In 1953, there had been a landmark court case, Brown versus Allen. It involved an African-American man on death row appealing to the Supreme Court to have his conviction thrown out on the basis that his trial had been unfair. The Supreme Court found against him, and he was subsequently executed, but the important part was that the Supreme Court had bothered to hear his case at all. Usually, these cases would get kicked around local and state courts who would invariably find in favour of the state and the prisoner would stay imprisoned. Brown v. Allen set a precedent for Supreme Court challenges and a number of very important decisions came down that ruled that many trials being conducted at the state level were thoroughly unconstitutional and thus could be overturned. Sutton had a nest of convictions to have thrown out, but in many ways that worked in his favour. Several of those convictions relied on prior convictions, such as the mandatory minimum 25 years he got when he was arrested after release from Dana Mora. 
knock out one conviction, and the rest would follow. He partnered with Catherine Beitzies, a God-fearing trial attorney who had opened up a community legal practice in Queens. Sutton wasn't even sure if he would live to see his convictions overturned. That same year, he had to have major surgery to correct clogged arteries, which had essentially paralysed him from the waist down. The surgeon insisted he come back for subsequent operations, but between his need to appear in court and the reluctance of prison authorities to release him for any medical reason, he had to take the risk that he wouldn't die of a heart attack before they released him. In 1968, they begun by getting his conviction as a fourth offender from his 1934 Philadelphia arrest thrown out on the grounds that he wasn't given any proper counsel. It was successful, and the conviction was set aside. This meant that he could go back and have the life sentence on the gun charge from his 1952 New York arrest set aside for resentencing because that sentence was partly based on his fourth offender conviction. Beitzies then spent a month being intentionally dicked around by the Philadelphia district attorney, who lost paperwork, refiled it, told her at the last minute that she couldn't file the papers there anyway because she wasn't a member of the state bar, forcing her to get someone else to do it for her, and then when Sutton finally got his day in court, they changed the venue at the last second as a final insult. In court, the DA announced that he'd slapped a number of new detainers on Sutton, a detainer being a, a hold on a prisoner in a given jurisdiction. The motion to remove them was denied, and Sutton would have to wait in Philadelphia for an appeal to the Superior Court. In the meantime, the court in New York resentenced him on the gun charge, one year suspended, down from the original 30. Ten months later, his appeal was denied at the Superior Court, which allowed him access to a state Supreme Court appeal. The Supreme Court of Pennsylvania found in his favour. They said that the state had failed repeatedly to provide Sutton adequate counsel for both his 1934 conviction and the Penn State escape, and that they'd had a full 17 years to do so. The court quashed both these convictions. The state had the right to further appeals, but there was an election coming up, and it did the governor good to let a sick old man with a big fan base out of prison. Plus, the state was worried that a high-profile case like this one could encourage a flood of petitions from other inmates. If Willie was just willing to cop a misdemeanor charge with time served on the Holmesburg escape, they wouldn't fight the other convictions. This freed him from Pennsylvania. Back in New York, he was resentenced for the Corn Exchange bank robbery, the one near Central Park. He got 15 to 20 years. He'd been in Attica for 17 years at this point, which meant he was now due for a parole hearing. On ruling, the judge commented that, I cannot hold any brief for your client because the probation report indicates he has probably the worst criminal record of any man who has ever appeared before me in 45 years in the administration of justice. However, the judge was swayed not only by time served, but also Sutton's ill health, and argued that on compassionate grounds, he should be freed. In closing, the judge also said, There is only one thing that I want to add. They all speak of his tremendous ability, but I sum it up differently. He began to believe his own publicity. That is the disease from which he suffered. The fact that he was not right is indicated by the number of times he was caught and the number of years he has been in prison. But he was glamorized. That is the sad state. He was glamorized the entire time. The parole board initially denied Sutton's release, and it looked as though he would have to wait another two years. In response, Bitesies went on a publicity campaign. She wrote an open letter to the governor, went on talk shows, and got support from the New York Post. On Christmas Eve 1969, Sutton was handed a cheque and a suit and released to a snow-lined New York street. 
The governor, unable to pressure the parole board, eventually instructed prison authorities to more or less just let him go. No one would bother stopping them. After 20 months of bitter legal wrangling, the state just released him with a resigned shrug. Sutton lived out his days in Florida. He did a few talk shows, wrote not one but two autobiographies, and in a fitting piece of final irony, in 1976, he made an ad for a bank advertising a new kind of MasterCard. Here's the audio. New Britain Bank and Trust has a new kind of master charge card. They call it the face card. You see it has your face right on it. If your card is lost or stolen, don't worry. Nobody can use your card because nobody has your face. Now when I say I'm Willie Sutton, people believe me. On the 2nd of November, 1980, he died of emphysema. He broke out of prison three times, stole an estimated $2 million, and spent more than half of his life behind bars. So who was Sutton, and what drove him? Well, remember his time at Penn State, when he worked with the prison shrink? Sutton once asked the doctor if he thought he could be rehabilitated, and this is what he said. I think that banks will always present such a challenge to you that I have serious doubts you wouldn't try and rob one the moment you were out in the streets. And by Sutton's own admission, the doc was right. Why did I rob banks? Because I enjoyed it. I loved it. I was more alive when I was inside a bank robbing it than at any other time in my life. I enjoyed everything about it so much that one or two weeks later, I'd be out looking for the next job. To me, the money was chips, that's all. The winnings, but nothing more.